I think the, the statistics speak for themselves, don't they? Unfortunately, I think it's a McKinsey study, isn't it, on productivity that had construction last but one for hunting and fishing. And I think in the latest version, we've been relegated hunting and hunting and fishing have overtaken us in terms of productivity, which isn't isn't a great story, is it? To be honest, I've always been a bit frustrated by the way we, we do things. So when I started out, we were we generally specified products or, or similar approved was how we wrote it on our drawings. And European legislation came in that meant that we couldn't do that because it's about seen as a barrier to trade. So as a designer, I went from a world where I could choose what I thought were the best products for a client for their, for their facility that someone would then price to, to deliver that to a world where I couldn't specify anything. We still have a skill deficit in the workforce around the use of, of the modern platforms because the pace at which they've advanced has outpaced the ability for the workforce to adapt and adopt. So there's a big gap there that we really, really still need to address. And those are hard yards. There's a lot of work to be done there. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we are looking at some of the major problems facing the construction industry. Problems that have seen the construction industry achieve lower productivity growth than even the hunting and fishing. The answer? Transforming our design processes by making decisions at an earlier stage in the project. Adopting a more collaborative approach. Incentivizing outcomes. And standardizing where we can. A massive cultural shift is needed, and we will see that there are many challenges along the way. But we will also learn about a seven-point plan to make it happen. The productivity issues facing construction are not new. The industry has been speaking about them for many years, and we've spoken about them in previous episodes of the podcast, most recently in episode 63, Nine Days to Build a Hospital. It is often criticised for low productivity compared to other sectors. But unlike, for example, the automotive industry, construction does not get to perfect its processes in a controlled environment, creating the same component thousands of times. Exactly so. But in that episode, we spoke about the use of technology to manage site processes and to push construction to deliver what seemed like the impossible. In this episode, we are looking at what comes before work moves to site, how we are wasting so much time and money going back and forth, retreading the same paper-strewn paths before sign-off. Before we get into this, we need to understand how the traditional linear design process works. In the infrastructure sector, for example. So let's ask a designer, Leslie Ward from Atkins, who has been thinking about industry design habits for some time now. So in the very traditional design process, we're responding to a client's need and a set of outcomes that they have to achieve. 
And as designers, we'll gather all of the relevant information that exists and go and get additional information if we need to about those requirements and the particular location where where the need has been identified. Then the designer will start to develop a number of different options as to how a client could address these needs and put costs and benefits against each option. This forms the business case for the client. And at that stage, it might, you know, it's a line on a drawing type of thing. So your estimates are what, what we refer to as sort of broadly a top-down estimate based on previous experience and, and similar projects and the like. So, so there's quite a lot of scope for, for movement on those figures, both in terms of cost and how long it will take. And you come up with a preferred option. Then they'll appoint someone to do the preliminary or the outline design, and that might not be the same people who've done the option stage work. So someone will work on this preferred option and add more detail, refining the cost and the time, or refining the benefits as needed. Then, again, making a decision on whether to go ahead with the project, and then you move through planning permission. Well, hopefully you get through planning permission. And then comes the detailed design. And when that's complete, it will be tendered for a contractor to come and build it. Or it might be that the contractor is appointed to do the design and construction. So in that sense, a contractor would be brought on board with a designer employed by them to work collaboratively with them as part of a team to develop the solution through to when you get out on site and and you construct it. But this traditional way of performing design has drawbacks. It can be incredibly inefficient, and many designers feel that they are repeating work unnecessarily. So I refer to this as our vanilla design process. So so because of procurement rules and legislation, we're, we're not able to choose those products as a designer, and they have to be chosen based on best value. And a lot of people think of best value as cheap as price. Depending on how the contracts are structured. But price does not equal cost. What that doesn't necessarily do, unless it's written into the contract, is consider the whole life cost of maintaining a product or material, or the impact of that on the approach that will have to be taken in construction and the overall time spent in construction. When you are constructing projects, there is a management cost, along with all of the other overheads that are time related. Maybe you're working in an urban environment with disruption to adjacent roadways or on a motorway with reduced speed limits and... On the rail network, we have to have rail possessions. So the time we spend um, out on site has implications both in terms, of, in terms of the safety exposure to workforce, the disruption to customers, our clients' customers, whatever form they take. That disruption and, and those factors, it's quite hard to factor those into your decision-making process when you're looking at the cost of a project and the unit cost of materials or components. So decision-making traditionally was down to the cheapest price at the time. Some progressive contracts have taken a broader view than that, but generally this was it. So because of the approach we take that I've outlined before about the option stage, then the preliminary design stage, then the detailed design stage, so we're progressively putting more and more detail in. And because of the lifespan that's over, quite often you'll see changes in people, you'll see changes in organisations, and everyone will start to have a different view on what the right thing is to do and the right solution. 
and the design will continually be tweaked and updated and adjusted. And an awful lot of that is down to personal preference. And by the time we actually get to site, and ultimately the decision on what product to buy and what technique's gonna be used, ultimately a lot of the time doesn't get finalized until the order's signed for the contract, for the material or the product. At that point, you could have changed something a number of times because you've all agreed you're going to do it one way. And then for some reason, someone changes their mind or something else comes into play and we're maybe not strong enough at saying no. And it just gets changed because that's how we've always done it. Core decision making is too late in the process for modern, complex projects. It is wasteful in time and it's wasteful in resources. And there is a growing movement to do something about it. I'm Leslie Ward. I'm the Atkins Global Programme Lead for Design Transformation. My typical day is working with colleagues from across the globe to agree a consistent global approach to delivering design and engineering projects that will allow us to transform the way we do this for our clients, to give them much greater certainty in delivering their project outcomes. Leslie joined the company as a graduate in 1989, and before that was trained at the drawing board as an apprentice, working at that for a few years before going to university to study civil engineering. She has worked on many projects in a career that has spanned structural detailing and design, bridges for road and rail projects, highways maintenance, construction and programme management, and business and client leadership. One of the most rewarding projects I worked on was when I first graduated was the first phase of Manchester Metrolink. So we were lucky enough to be the designers for phase one of, of Metrolink, and that involved a lot of new build work around Manchester city centre, but also a great deal of refurbishment on the heavy rail lines between Altrincham and Manchester and also between Bury and Manchester. One thing that's unusual in Leslie's case is that while most people come into civil engineering to design new build, she took an interest in older structures. But I actually found some immense challenges and satisfaction out of rehabilitating existing assets. And uh, we had a whole viaduct, Cornbrook Viaduct, that carries the trams from GMEX centre out towards Altrincham and we had to refurbish every span of this this viaduct which was a mixture of brick arches, metal spans, predominantly wrought iron with some cast iron and also some metal widenings to the arch structures over a variety of watercourses in a not so nice area of Manchester which had been infested with pigeons for quite some time. It's quite messy, but also um, very interesting, very challenging. And I was lucky enough to be seconded to the contractor, Molan, to work on site on the construction of, of, I've got to move around quite a bit on the project. And, and it really sort of quite early on gave me a much broader appreciation for working with existing infrastructure and the challenges our clients face in keeping those assets going over time and the information they need to be able to do that. And this is the key to something important. Leslie's interest in the longer term performance of things and an appreciation of matters beyond the immediate. It's certainly driven her to push for reform of now traditional design processes that have built up over time. Remember earlier in the episode? 
Leslie said that she went from a world at the start of her career where she could specify what she thought was the best solution for the client to one in which she couldn't specify anything. You know, I could specify the grade of concrete and I could specify in detail the reinforcement or the steel strength or whatever it might be. But I couldn't choose products and that was left to the contractor to propose them to us. And the industry historically has been very focused on unit cost. So the unit cost of some material or a product out on site is just how everyone measured the cost on a project and how people were incentivized. And what what that didn't do was consider how long the product might last. All right, you might have written that into a specification, but how is it going to perform over the life of a project or the life of an asset rather? And the reasons you were making the selection you were making, on reflection, I'm not sure they took into account how long it might take to install that product or to, you know, if you were doing something in situ on site, the wet trades notoriously become a critical path activity whilst they dry out. So whether that's concrete, paint, plaster, whatever it might be. Under the current normal working practices, the designer can only go so far unless design itself is transformed. But what exactly is design transformation? For Leslie, it started eight years ago, during the UK's Building Schools for the Future programme. She had an awakening while dealing with a contractor on the project. We got involved with one contractor who had invested heavily in a manufacturing facility. And they basically said, you need to work using our products. So your design needs to be developed around our products. And they were also at the forefront of the BIM revolution, if you like. So at that time, the government had come out and said that any government funded projects had to have BIM level two by 2016. BIM is building information modeling. And for a project to be considered level two, it requires developing building information in a collaborative 3D model with data attached. But the discipline models are still separate. And this is predating that, but everyone was starting to get interested in BIM and what that meant and what we needed to do to be able to achieve that. And this contractor basically said, unless you work in 3D and unless you work with us using our products, then you're not going to do any more work for us. And, and actually, it was a fantastic learning experience. And they were investing quite heavily, not just in, in getting the 3D model produced, but in, implement, in embedding 4D time data and 5D cost data, which they added to the model. They also used the model to work out where to position all of their plants and equipment on site so they could visualise where it was, how they were going to put it together, where it was all going to fit. What was really interesting is the construction team working with us pre-construction were really frustrated that the products were predefined because they were still measured on the old way, on unit cost. So they had these conflicting sort of priorities. But nevertheless, we worked around these products. We did all the clash detection. We did an element of digital rehearsal, not as sophisticated as we can do today. And when they got to site, they had no choice. No wiggle room. They had to build what the plan said was to be built. And funnily enough... 
And that project was finished early within budget. And we delivered the design, the architectural design for that for less than half the price we would have delivered a very traditional architectural design. Now, that's that's a one-off. And I guess what I wouldn't say is to expect that sort of saving on every project. Um, there were particular circumstances that allowed us to do that. But it showed Leslie the art of the possible. It showed her what could be achieved. And when she went back to the infrastructure sector with its linear workflow... I felt like I'd gone into the dark ages. I think generally that experience we had on that particular schools project was a, was a bit unique at the time which is why it was so special and why it stood out. But it taught me an awful lot about what we could do and the key enablers that we need to put in place to allow us to do that going forward. So ever since then, I've been on a mission to try and influence clients, to try and influence colleagues, to try and influence contractors that we work with. There's a whole load of elements that we need to think about that are critical enablers to allowing us to work more collaboratively and more efficiently together in this industry. And we've got to we've got to put them all in place. Simply then, what is design transformation? With the digital tools and technology that are available to us today, there's no reason why we can't be shifting a lot of the decision-making left in the timeline of a project. So bringing those decisions much earlier into the development of the solution for the client's challenges. So how can we use the data that is available to us today, the insights that that brings, the information we can generate, and how can we combine that with earlier decision-making to give much greater clarity and certainty on the project outcomes. So for some of our clients, making earlier decisions and getting the project through the whole governance process earlier means that they can get the infrastructure, whatever that may be, in use earlier, which means the business case benefits get realised earlier. So there's a, there's a whole life cycle benefit approach here that I'm not sure we're fully grasping at the moment because the governance processes and the methodology we follow is the way we've always done it. We're just using digital tools to do some of those elements. We're not fundamentally rethinking that process. One big thing this does mean is that a lot more work could be done before going through the planning process. So if we could do something that, that used um, standard components with cost and time attached to them, that rather than the traditional you know, line on a piece of paper for a preferred option, it, we do some generative design based on rules that, that lay out a road or a railway or, or construct a building. All of that means that you could have greater certainty before you go through your governance processes. So for me, Design transformation will be a success when we've we've rethought that approach and that we consistently deliver predictability in outcomes for our clients and for ourselves. And in doing so, we've driven the inefficiencies out of our industry and shifted to a reward model that is truly based on value. 
Leslie has seven key ingredients that she thinks the industry needs to work on, and they are not all easy, or they would have been done already. The first ingredient is to have properly articulated outcomes. So quite often we don't, historically I reflect on my career, and I'm not sure how often we've talked about outcomes. What one client in particular does talk about outcomes to us that, that I've worked closely with, but others, you know, when we were doing schools, it was build a school. You know, it was design and build a school with this capacity. But the, I'm, I'm not sure there were outcomes in terms of, you know, learning outcomes, the environment outcomes. And, you know, there's a specification, but that's slightly different from the outcomes. So, so how do we properly articulate those outcomes that we all need to buy into? The second is how do we then align the commercial models and incentivization to those outcomes? And I'm not saying this is easy. Uh, you know, it's, it's, if it was easy, we'd have done it before now, wouldn't we? Um, this is part of the challenge, maybe, why the industry hasn't changed. The third is how we truly collaborate from the outset and have the right team assembled early on. So we frequently see clients procuring services just for one stage of a project, and then they retender the next stage, and then they retender the next stage. And, and that, for me, isn't going to get the right solution, unless someone fundamentally isn't performing. Then we need to bring collaborative teams together that are wedded to the outcomes, that take that through its whole life and to deliver those outcomes in the most efficient way. And that team need to properly use the data and insight and experience that allows them to confidently make decisions at the earliest opportunity because they recognise the broader agenda rather than I'm just doing this bit and then I'm going to hand over to someone else and that becomes their problem. So, so how we form those collaborative teams is, is really important. The next one is clarity on data and information management requirements for the whole project lifecycle. So our clients need asset data. They need to understand how to manage their asset. And historically, that's a painful exercise when we finished a construction project producing a whole load of as-built drawings and maintenance manuals that then have to be plugged into a client's asset management system. You know, digital is allowing us to look at how we do that in a much more streamlined approach. But again, if you're only if you're only employed to do the option stage, are you going to set up the data requirements right the way through for the whole life cycle to feed the asset management stage? And our, our clients give us employers information requirements, but but again, there's varying levels of detail and maturity in those requirements which leaves some of that open to interpretation and um, different levels of maturity in, in the supply chain communities. So, so we need to be much clearer on what those data and information requirements are. And actually, we all need to recognise ourselves as information managers. BS 1192, the British Code of Practice on Collaborative Production of Architectural, Engineering and Construction Information, had a requirement for an information manager. This has now been replaced by ISO 19650. But as Leslie points out, we've all been information managers for a very long time now. Then comes standardisation. Standardising, productising, manufacturing components and, and all the benefits that brings with greater safety, greater consistency, greater quality controls off-site with a view to reducing the time we spend on-site 
And, and this is about standardizing the repetitive stuff that we can easily standardize and using our intellect on the areas where we can't do that, on the really complex issues and looking at how we make those products more and more compatible and easier to use. Leslie looks to an often cited industry that occupies a higher McKinsey productivity ranking than construction. What can we learn from the automotive sector in how they put, put things together? So, you know, they glue a lot of components and the components, uh, when they offer up a part on a car, it clips into place before it's glued. So only one person needs to do it because it clips into place. They don't need someone else to hold it while they, someone else fixes it. You know, how do we learn from things like that? When So we can manufacture all this stuff off site, but we're still going to be clever around how we put it together when we bring it to site. In the case of construction, this means... We've got to then digitally rehearse what we're going to do. Finally comes education. This is a cultural and behavioural change that is enabled by the digital tools and technology. You know, that the tools and technology bit's the easy bit. We can train and develop people in those tools and technology. The, the rewiring the behaviours of consultants, contractors and clients that are, um, you know, ingrained from, you know, what, what is over 30 years in this industry for me. That, that is the, the challenge and actually helping people see the art of the possible if we took a leap of faith and were willing to start doing things differently and pushing ourselves out, out of our comfort zone. Over in North America, Atkins Director of Client Technology, Donna Huey, has been thinking about why now. Why is right now the opportune moment for design transformation? Pre-COVID, you know, the catalysts were really around the advancements in cloud computing, some of the advanced interoperability we were seeing between leading software platforms in the AEC and construction industry. There's been a big, big uptick in the use of technology and automation in construction. And since the design and engineering space obviously either works jointly in delivery or as a supply chain partner in delivery with construction, you know, those were transformative catalysts that we were seeing happen. But the context of why this is happening now is a lot different post COVID. It's taken on new meaning and we can accelerate from a position of acceptance as opposed to a position of, of resistance. Whereas, you know, pre-COVID, there was still a big behavioral change element to getting people to adopt new ways of working. COVID's really accelerated that issue. And most of the industry's been forced in some respect to be more comfortable online, be more comfortable with remote and cloud-based working. And the behavioral changes by being accelerated are helping us with pushing the new advantages that some of those pre-COVID uh, catalysts were going to drive. Here's Leslie again with an example. She also sees COVID as an accelerator of this process. Who'd have thought we'd be doing virtual public consultations as part of a planning process? If we'd suggested that a year ago, everyone would have said we couldn't do it. But we're doing it now because because we have to to keep things moving. So so you know how else can we really push those boundaries? But aside from willingness to be flexible in how you engage with a project, the other important change needed, and it's no small change, is to incentivize all parties towards positive outcomes, and this needs trust. 
So there's a complete lack of trust at the moment. There's a you know there's a lack of trust that that if you give someone an inch, they'll take advantage. So the contracts are written from the perspective of we don't trust people, rather than written from a perspective of how do we get everyone into a place where we can trust them. And I think that's what the incentivization needs to do. It needs to be, you know, genuinely all aligned and positively incentivized. And, you know, it it's not going to happen overnight. There'll be increments that we need to take and steps that we need to take to progressively work towards this. And I'm under no illusion it, about it being being easy or or you know us being being able to affect the change quickly. But but we've got to do something. We can't just we can't just keep doing what we're doing. You know the government's beating us up over productivity targets and the fact that we haven't improved them. I am hopeful to see that it will take a change in the way owners solicit new work. It will take a change in the way contracts are written and managed. So these are still big hurdles. It's, it's not just a willingness. It does come down to the brass tacks of policy frameworks and contracts that, you know, also have to adapt alongside the behavior changes. To achieve improvements in the design process needs the help of designers, contractors and clients. But clients hold the purse strings and can set their own working processes. Here is Richard Robinson, Atkins CEO for the UK and Europe, who formerly worked as Chief Operating Officer for High Speed 2. Clients have a typical set of problems, don't they? They are challenged in time in the approvals process, the front front end planning and approvals process often squeezes the time uh, schedule allowance for actually executing the project because quite often the end the aspirational end date for the project doesn't change and of course every project encounters cost challenges along the way so so with those you know with that typical set of things in mind what design transformation sets out to do is really joint first of all to create a common data environment for capturing all of the data as it as it's produced from the get-go on a project to that capturing that data allows us to to mine for information and insights but also to automate so to automate the design process and then having that common data environment also allows us then to pass all the information we accumulate at the front end of a project into further stages downstream even if the company in question is not involved in the downstream activity so to enable construction scheduling to enable 3d rehearsal digital rehearsals uh, onwards and into actual on-site scheduling, project management, and then obviously on to commissioning and operations. So it's really the the key start, keystone building block in the in digital transformation of the of the construction process. As for a roadmap, for Richard, the important part is to set up this common data environment as quickly as possible. To set up that common data environment and set it up quickly. So we we've been working hard on these tools of are complete now and in use for automatic setup of the common data environment. So instead of it taking three, four weeks to do, it takes a couple of hours. That, that's the main building block. We're then harvesting all of our BIM libraries for to, to create standard item libraries to build BIM models from. We're well on the way with that. 
And uh, then the whole AI and automation piece starts to build and we have some parts of the design processes automated, such as um, OLE design overhead line in, in rail. And we're just continuing to press on on that. So I think, you know, I, I think within a couple of years, we'll be we'll be well on the well on the way to that automated environment, but also where we can then apply. Um, it's not just about automating the design process and getting rid of design. It's certainly not about getting rid of design. It's enabling us to do all of the, the standard stuff quicker and easier, and then we can apply more intelligent insights to to say construction scheduling, construction sequencing, reducing you know reducing to zero the uh, the TQs that happen on site. TQs, technical queries. That's one of our short-term goals, actually, within the foreseeable future, to to get that sort of thing out of the way, and because that f- affects cost and schedule, obviously, as a, as a site as a site's built. And what about the future? Here is what Richard sees designers achieving in five years' time. The speed and the accuracy with which we're able to to produce first cut design, so first an outline design, we will be cut from months to days if if not if not hours and 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 then i think that will create a whole a huge amount of time and also capability through the use of artificial intelligence to then optimize the scheme you've got to optimize its constructability to op- optimize logistics optimize earth move all of those all of those big things that if you look at some uh, some recent major projects that may have hit the news you know that, that where they've had big big rises in cost as they've gone through the design process they've had huge rises in cost and schedule and a lot of that's been around not understanding ground conditions early enough and then not being able to predict the huge amounts of earth move that are required and 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 just knock on knock on from there Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervisor is John Young. And our own innovator stimulator was Rory Harris. Special thanks to Atkins. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reb.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 